Welcome to Hollowed Ground Storycast. I'm Alan. And I'm Anya, and this episode is about my favorite memoir, Crazy for God. How I grew up as one of the elect, helped fund the religious right, and lived to take all, or almost all of it, back. Life had two huge demarcation lines, a cosmic before and after, from which everything else flowed. There was salvation, the crossing of the line from light to dark, and there was crazy for God, and life before the book and life after. So I just want to let people know up front that uh, in our discussion, we're going to be talking about religion and politics and abortion and... And masturbation. And masturbation. I know that some of those subjects can be like very personally painful for some people to like even think about religion or the subject of abortion sometimes or all of these things. Uh, Politics. It can be very upsetting for people. Uh, So maybe skip this episode if you need to. That's okay. So this one is weird because it's a memoir, but I guess how would we summarize this? Like, what is this book about? Uh, The subtitle does a pretty good job, but I guess I can give it in a little bit more detail. Um, So it follows the life of Francis Frank Schaefer. Um, He grew up in Switzerland in a missionary compound in like the 1950s. Uh, Then he goes to boarding school in the UK. Then he comes back to the missionary compound in the mid to late 60s, sort of in the middle of the hippie movement when things have changed a lot and his missionary parents' theology has evolved a little bit. Um, And then he, as a a late teen, decides to get really involved in the pro-life movement and basically like brought the pro-life movement into uh, the evangelical culture where it's like previously it had really been seen as a Catholic issue. Mm -hmm. Um, And so he basically, as part of like trying to advance the pro-life movement and get evangelicals involved, helped create the modern religious right as we know it. Um, Then he kind of got sick of that and tried to transition (laughs) into Hollywood in the 80s um, and then eventually became a successful novelist and nonfiction writer. Um, And so this is basically sort of like him looking back on all of that and trying to make sense of his life, I guess. Part of it is that his life is interesting and part of it is that like he was there at some like really key cultural moments kind of like behind the scenes and so he's like trying to shed a light on like how some of all of that went down. Yeah, there's like a tell-all quality to the book about certain like famous evangelical personalities in America, right? Yeah. Yeah. And even famous musicians and artists in the 1960s that were like completely unconnected to the evangelical movement. Yeah. I guess we can talk (laughs) more about that later. (laughs) Like how much it felt like, like bragging versus context setting. There's like kind of a thin line there. You told me about this book a long time ago when um, we first started up the show. And it seems more like of the two of us, it would be me who would have stumbled across this. Um, But how did you find this? Yeah, I'm actually one of the reasons why I was really excited to talk to you about this is because I know you spend a lot of time thinking about religion and have a lot of thoughts about this. So so I'm excited to get deeper into that. 
I found this book my senior year of college around the same time that I was watching all of Buffy and Angel for the first time. It was a big year for me. Um, (laughs) In the spirit of memoir, I guess I'll just tell the whole story and set the scene. So I went to a, a small liberal arts college on the East Coast. And like most small liberal arts colleges, we had like some really weird, bizarre, specific aspects to that experience. And so one of those things was that um, some of the best dorms on campus were these buildings of suites. And the suites had two singles and one double. And the way the housing system on campus worked, seniors basically had to live in singles. And sophomores had to live in doubles. And then juniors could kind of, like, go either way depending on where you fell in the draft and, like, how many credits you had. So there's this, like, super weird time of year in the spring right before room draw where it was, like, all of the rising seniors were basically, like, wandering around campus trying to find sophomores that they could convince to live with them so they could get one of these really nice suites. Um, And so I managed to find two sophomores who I like one of them I like kind of knew through athletics and then she had a friend so I like me and my friend who was uh who got me into Buffy who was also a senior like we moved in with these people who we basically barely knew and so it was one of the sophomores who was um Christian and a practicing religious person um had this book and it was just sitting on our kitchen table and so I started reading it Um, a little bit behind her. And so it was just like a book that lived in our living room and she and I were both reading through it kind of like at our own pace. You know, like we each had our separate bookmarks in the book (laughs) that we were reading simultaneously. (laughs) Um, And it was was a really like fun shared experience um, to sort of like go through the book and talk about it with her. I guess I can talk a little bit more about my religious upbringing as well. My dad's family is kind of like secular Jewish. My mom was kind of like a hippie, like lapsed Christian practicing meditation and like Eastern religion influence. Like she would have been very at home at Libri in the 60s. Mm -hmm. And then when I was like two or three, I guess they decided that they wanted to raise me in a religious community of some kind because... Um, Although, like, religion was not super important to them, they felt that being raised in a completely secular environment would make it really hard to identify with religious people and empathize with them and understand them. And I think they just liked the community aspect of it. Um, So they kind of shopped around for a church and ended up in, like, a mainline Protestant church that was basically Unitarian Universalist in terms of its actual theology. Okay. Yeah, I grew up, like, really enjoying church, loving my church community, thinking that church was basically, like, a place that you went on Sunday and you would, like, listen to somebody talk about, you know, philosophy and history and blah, blah, blah. Um, God, God, God. And, <laughs> and there was, like, no real pressure to believe anything specific. And then my... I had... Like, my first experience with evangelical culture 
in third grade, I went to church camp, and, like, in retrospect, my parents really should have prepared me for it better, because it was, it was, like, a (laughs) church camp run by the mainline Protestant denomination, which is, like, it covers a wide spectrum of liberal and conservative churches, and so, yeah, I was, like, a nine-year-old, and it was the first time I had ever encountered anybody talking about Jesus like a best friend, as opposed to a historical figure that we sort of look to for wisdom, but, like, not someone that you actually talk to. Like, in my church, we always prayed to God, not to Jesus. And I remember, too, like, hearing... That was, like, the first time I had ever heard masturbation talked about as a bad thing. It wasn't from, like, the adults in charge or whatever. It was, like, some older, like, fifth or sixth grade boys... We were, like, lining up for lunch one day, and I remember they just had this chant that was, like, no more masturbation, no more masturbation, and I was just, like, oh, like, I don't know. Like, my parents had talked to me about stuff like that, and they had basically been, you know, like, you know, this is something that, like, you can do, but you need to do it in privacy, and, like, don't do it (laughs) when you go to other people's houses. It's, like, something that we do in private. But it's not evil. Yeah, it's not evil. It's not, like, something that needs to be, like, avoided. And weirdly, <laughs> that that is a theme of this book. I know. There's a lot of <laughs> masturbation in this book. Oh, there's a lot. It's, <laughs> it's shocking how much there is, actually. Um, but I guess, you know, he's being honest, whatever. Yeah. Well, and that was why, like, honestly, like, I probably would not have brought up that story, except that it is, like, such an undercurrent <laughs> <laughs> in the book. Since that's, like, the one thing, like, one of the main things that I remember taking away from that church camp experience, like, and it was, yeah, like, that was the, like, the first time I ever remember really, like, experiencing sexual shame. Um, And I never went back to church camp after that. Yeah. But then later on in high school, I did end up going on a mission trip um, with a friend of mine, and that was the first time that I heard people really, like, talking about Satan as, Mm. like, a trickster god, you know, who's, like, there to trip you up and, like, do evil and, like, someone you had to be, like, afraid of. Um, Because, again, like, in my my church community, like, I definitely knew that Satan existed in the context of the Bible, but we basically never talked about it. Like, there was no boogeyman... I guess, or I guess, like, I knew that sort of, like, fringe cultists believed in, like, Satan and used him as a boogeyman, <laughs> but I hadn't realized that sort of, like... How widespread it was. Yeah, that, like, just sort of, like, regular Presbyterians that you would, like, run into at school or at the grocery store, like, also, like, literally believed that there was a Satan... And was right there with you. Yeah, and was yeah. right there with you and, like, had a personality that was, like, just as important and individual as like their vision of god and that you had to like constantly be on the lookout yeah and so this book kind of made me think back a little bit more on those experiences and sort of like interested me in the same way that my interest was piqued by by those experiences as well oh yeah because this would be a window into like an entire church experience that like would be alien to what you're talking about yeah yeah um, yeah, so what did you think when I uh, when you first listened to the book? My experience of reading this book was like a lot of nodding my head like, yeah, this is exactly what church is like because this is like how I grew up. 
um, because you said that, you know, like in the beginning of when he's very young, they're extremely strict. And then he goes off. And when he comes back in the 60s, they're kind of like this weird hippie commune, but they're Christian. Yeah. Um, it's like, and he's like, what happened? Um, but they're the same people and they still believe that they think the same way. Like, but for him, it was like a time warp or something. Well, and also he spent that intervening time in like British boarding school culture. So he went through like (laughs) two incredibly strong, uh, instances of like culture shock. (laughs) And puberty. And it's like, yeah, it was a big shakeup for him. Like when I was very little, we didn't go to church when my parents were still together. And then at about the third grade, my parents got a divorce. My dad, like basically he caused the divorce because of his behavior. And uh, my mom left. Before this, my dad was like a pot smoking hippie kind of party guy. He felt like that was part of the reason why he had messed up his life. And so he quit everything. He like quit drugs and drinking and went to church because that's what you're supposed to do. And like he um, became a born again Christian. He got sober and straight. And so we lived with him and went to church on like Wednesdays and Sundays at a pretty strict and dour um, Southern Baptist church and Southern Baptist church is kind of like a fire and brimstone, um, kind of a thing where very like based in reading the Bible as a literal kind of history and science book. Mm-hmm. And it, he talks about it in crazy for God. It's like anything that conflicts with the account of the Bible is a lie from the pit of hell and Satan to deceive you and to send you to hell. So you can't believe like anything that contradicts the Bible is dangerous, like literally dangerous for your soul and for the souls of every human on earth. So that was like the context of his um, spiritual education. And I mean, he like, he bought in completely he remarried uh, my stepmother and they're still married to this day. Basically like the church that we went to was founded by her family. Mm. So we were very close into the church culture there. And for her, like it's kind of like the way that he describes his mother in this, where she was raised by missionaries and she was always in the church culture and and it was a deep part of his mother's identity. It was kind of the same thing for uh, my stepmother. Then we went to, we moved across the country away from that church. The church that we ended up going to in Louisiana uh, is still there. It's like one of these kind of mega churches where thousands of people go to church. Mm-hmm. And it was part of a movement in the late 90s called charismatic Christianity, Mm -hmm. where people would um, like speak in tongues or you would hear somebody speak in tongues and then somebody else would translate it. There was laying out of hands for healing. There was people would kind of like touch you and you would pass out from 
the intensity of the Holy Spirit entering your body. And the church that I went to is called um, Bethany Church. It's in a suburb of um, Baton Rouge because um, Baton Rouge is like the seat of government for Louisiana. So we would have like senators and Congress people from the state level come there and like speak at our church and be like, oh, you know, I'm a Christian and I'm, vote for me. And like it was always Republican people. And so like this whole later stage of this book, I was just like, yep, yep, yep. <laughs> the So the early part where they're like super strict and then the later part where it's all like, whatever, we're just making it up as we go. I was like, yeah. I know all about all this stuff. That's exactly how I grew up too. And so for me, like when I was growing up, I was very interested in science and stuff like that. And none of that was allowed. So I would like have to hide science books like under my bed instead of like pornography or something like that. Oh my God. (laughs) When I got out of that household, religion, I think for me, like my reaction to it, my kind of my rebellion and and forming my identity was to try and like reclaim religion for myself and study it and really understand it and refuse to like believe that that is all it could be is is this kind of um hysterical worship that doesn't make any sense and denies reality it lives like in its own bubble that doesn't make any sense like i wanted to understand the context of religion and kind of like dedicated myself to that. I don't have any degrees in it, but like I have a bookshelf full of primary, secondary and tertiary sources that I've read many, many times. So I'm curious, like to what extent you struggled with faith in a kind of like childlike way, the way that Frankie did in the book what, did you have a moment where you like decided that you couldn't believe anymore or didn't believe anymore? Or did you never really believe all along? I don't know. Like our, our family doesn't go to church. Uh, and actually like you talk about your parents and how they took you to church and stuff. Like I don't talk about any kind of spirituality with my children because I don't know what to say. <laughs> like I don't, I don't know what to tell them, which is weird because like, it's hard to get me to not talk about that kind of stuff. If we do go to church, you know, like Easter or Christmas stuff um, with my wife's family sometimes, because they're very involved with their church and and they're also Baptists. um, So that's like very familiar for me. And I'll hear, you know, sermons from the pulpit and I will feel like convicted, like, oh, I'm a bad person for the way that I think and live. Like it works on me completely still. Really? Um, Oh, yeah, totally. Like, it just reaches right back into my childhood. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm a terrible person. Sorry, this this is kind of going back to what you were saying before. But what you mentioned about your dad, you know, like, had a sort of drug-riddled, chaotic life and then decided he needed to get his shit together and embraced religion. Like, it reminds me a little bit of the diagnosis in the book, their diagnosis of the hippie movement being that they had like correctly diagnosed a problem in culture, but had come up with the wrong cure that Mm, like, I like that part that it was like empty consumerist plastic Mm -hmm. bourgeois values. Um, but instead of, you know, they wanted to replace them with like free love and art and expression and, and instead it needed to be replaced with like the Bible 
the your dad right <laughs> your dad sort of like did the opposite side of that <laughs> yeah he totally did and he was into all that stuff not because he was like a freewheeling like party guy and he was having a good time he was self-medicating for a lot of trauma in his past Mm -hmm. and once he stopped self-medicating like he became a violent person with me and my brother and it made a lot of his problems worse and you know we'll talk about this later because i think it's an interesting part of the book but that particular brand of christianity doesn't it sees it as a kind of light switch right like where you yeah. get saved and it's over the work is done like you've been redeemed and so now you're a saint um i actually pulled out a quote from like that section of the book um in the hardback version i have it was on page 390 but it says Once you buy the evangelical born-again Jesus-saves mantra, the idea that salvation is a journey goes out the window. Um, And then he's comparing it to the orthodox idea um, of a slow journey to God, where no one is altogether instantly saved or lost, and nothing is completely resolved in life. Where it's more about the journey than the destination. And you are an unfinished work. Yeah. Yeah, and that was not the case at all. It was like... You are a saint, you're redeemed, you have a direct connection to God, and all of your impulses are directed by God. So if you are angry with your children, it is because, like, God has put that anger in you. It's not that there's a problem with you. Mm. You see what I mean? Like, it was just like, it was kind of the worst thing that could have happened for him. Uh, It wasn't great for me either, but, like, it was not a healthy thing for him. Yeah, and, and as far as, like my own personal conversion moment goes when I was about 12 years old. I, I think we were like having just like a lunch with my brother, my younger brother's godparents. And then I remember like, as we were going home in the car being like, wait, why don't I have godparents? And like, (laughs) why does he get these like people who like him and give him presents? And like, I don't have anybody. And my parents were like, oh, yeah, well, you know, like we didn't join the church until you were three. And we decided not to have you baptized because you were like too old to just sit there like a baby, but like not old enough to really understand what was happening. And we just thought it would be like kind of confusing. So we were just going to like wait for you to grow up and make that decision for yourself. And I was like, yeah, I do want godparents. Like, I want to I get baptized. And I, like, felt really left out. And I guess, you know, at that point, I think I was, like, I wasn't super sure about a belief in God, but I was still, like, trying to believe in God, I guess. And I was sort of like, mm-hmm. well, you know, like, why not? If God does exist, then, like, this is a good thing. And if God doesn't exist, then it's still a fine thing. Um, so, actually, I got to pick my godmother. Nice. Who was like my best friend's mom. And I knew that she was super Christian and religious, but in like a very like wholesome, not Satan-y kind of way. Um, <laughs> right. And so, yeah. And I was like, I feel like having her like as my spiritual cheerleader is going to be a good thing. I remember the, ser- like, I don't remember very much about the service. I remember like going through it and just like, Yeah, feeling like a little bit nervous and like it was a big momentous thing. And then afterwards being really glad that I had done it. Um, 
And then I think not that long after, probably like three or four years later, I think I decided that I was like pretty agnostic, but I was still glad that I had like gone through that experience and like made that decision for myself while I was questioning. It's (laughs) it's interesting that we're kind of having trouble like figuring out the timeline of of this discussion about the book because I feel like time in the book is somewhat fluid and like particularly in the first section oh my god I'm so glad you said that it's it is such a mess right (laughs) yeah and like like I love how time is so much more messed up in the section on his childhood because I feel like the way that children experience time and the way that like adults think about their childhood like is so Mm -hmm. much less linear than than through like the rest of our lives he definitely speaks to themes more than a strict chronology and kind of like works around it there was like (laughs) i related to so much of this book like in in the ways that he related to the the culture uh, with his parents and like, and a lot of like the anxieties that were buried both like in his family and their, their identity as Christians, but also in like what it is to be a Christian, you know, in, in modern times, he talks about like his conversion, not being very good or dramatic because he would just kind of was born into the church at the church that I went to the, the charismatic church, because it was so large, you could not like be in a community in that church, you know, because you're with 3000 people, how are you going to get to know anybody? Mm-hmm. And so the way that they solved that problem, they had this thing called cell groups, having like the body of Christ, but then it has like a cellular component that is made up of oh. maybe like eight to 10 people, but they're also like a model for if the antichrist shows up, we can go underground. Oh, like that was a, <laughs> it was like, this was the model for, for how to deal with the apocalypse. Should that event happen at any moment, which it definitely will happen at any moment. So our cell group leader had like a dramatic conversion story where he was like, a drug dealer and a drug addict. He was in prison. He had managed to escape prison. Like he had a prison escape. He lived in the bayou. Oh my on, God. Like, yeah. For weeks on like raw frogs and like, you know, like hunting stuff in the bayou. The dogs are hunting him. He's like, he gets like very sick because he's out there like in the, you know, septic water. He's got no fresh water to drink and all of this stuff. And then finally he like, he comes to Jesus and gets saved. And I'm like, my conversion story is meaningless. Like I don't matter (laughs) as a Christian compared to this man he's a great christian because listen to all the terrible things that happened to him and there was kind of like this value that was put on how dramatic is your conversion story and he talks about that in the book like his mother is constantly like justifying you know her i'm the good christian out of the two of us like poor fran yeah. he the the husband like he he wasn't raised right he came to christ late like she's got to justify her place 
in there and they have to like they see themselves as beggars you know or he sees them as beggars but they have to be like no we're these warriors for jesus yeah i think it's a fairly common feeling from a lot of people in that evangelical culture um so in addition to this book like one of the the ways that I sort of like keep an eye on evangelical culture is through this blog called Love Joy Feminism that's written by an ex-evangelical woman who goes by a pseudonym Libby Ann. She talks a ton about the feeling that you need a really dramatic conversion story and like there's value almost and like <laughs> doing bad things because then you can repent from them whereas like if you have nothing to repent from it's like what are you even doing <laughs> um yeah the i would say like the thing that i love most about her blog is the way that she talks about like sexual ethics it's interesting though because like this book i think throws a wrench into her dichotomy a little bit the way that she describes evangelical sexual ethics is basically that what makes something like sinful or not is basically like are you married or not and that's like the only measure of what makes sexual activity sinful or not um and that's mm. like one of the reasons why so many evangelical organizations are having a lot of problems with sexual abuse and like dealing with with sexual harassment and stuff is because they see sexual harassment and rape as, like, in the same category as premarital sex. Like, their consent right. doesn't enter into it at all. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And so that's why, you know, like, when young teen girls come forward and say that 20-year-old seminary students or whatever have been having sex with them, that they actually end up blaming both the older man and this, like, female child essentially because they both were having sexual relations out of marriage and like she must have been tempting him and all of that and it's like yeah consent doesn't even enter their framework um right. whereas sort of like the modern secular framework for sexual ethics is just like are there two or more i guess people consenting do they both have the ability to consent and are they consenting and like if so then that's ethical and if not it's not um but that was like Part of what made their mission in Switzerland, Libri, like, really different than, like, those other American evangelicals, right? Was that they actually seemed to have empathy and compassion for <laughs> for people like unwed mothers. Um, right. His parents, like, didn't seem that concerned with, like, sexually shaming him or... Like, I think that's one of the reasons why I love this book so much is because it kind of, like, defies a lot of the traditional dichotomies that I'm used to thinking about existing yeah. in the world. It sort of goes along with my theme of, like, I often, like, really like works of art that confuse me a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> this, like, fits into that a little bit. He talks about a lot people could not stand him. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he, he, he was an insufferable kid. He was the little shit from Switzerland. <laughs> yeah, because he could kind of do whatever he wanted and his parents, you know, had to deal with it. And um, yeah, and like, and the, they were compassionate. On the one hand, like, I understand people being annoyed that he was given special treatment in 
the mission, but also, like, he didn't have anywhere else to go. Like, that was his house. Everyone else, like, at the end of the day, they could go home to their families, and he, like, that was his home. He had nowhere else to go. So, like, I don't begrudge his parents for giving him that special treatment. Like, he didn't have anywhere else to work his shit out. (laughs) Yeah. And, And as far as, like, you know, how far back does this kind of um, strict culture go? I mean, you can, it goes all the way back to Jesus. Like you can look at in the Bible, there's the famous line in the sand, the, you know, the Pharisees and the Sadducees want to stone a woman for committing adultery, which was the law, which was, you know, God handed Moses the law. And it said, if a woman cheats on her husband, kill her by stoning her to death. And Jesus got in the way of that and drew a line in the sand and then started to write out the sins of the people in the crowd and said, you know, who among you has never sinned? Let him throw the first stone. That is the kind of mercy that his parents would show a real Christ-like mercy to unwed mothers. And these people in the crowd who were ready to stone the woman for committing adultery, which was the textually correct thing to do if you were following. It was good theology, in other words, Mm -hmm. to do that. But it was not humane. It was the letter of the law and not the spirit of the law. And that was the way that his parents lived. They lived by the spirit of the law. But, that you know, they struggled with that a lot, too. And he got to see that where his father was abusive to his mother, like literally would hit her. Yeah. But they had mercy for unwed mothers and for homosexual people that other evangelicals in their community would have said, you know, deserve to die or deserve whatever. Yeah. It's complicated. Yeah. It's interesting too. let me see if I can find this quote that I pulled out. So he's he's saying this in the context of uh, abortion, but. I think it sort of fits into to how we're talking about um, like treatment of unwed mothers and, and LGBT people. Um, For most Americans, thoughts about the rights of the unborn were blessedly fuzzy before Roe and allowed plenty of room for hypocrisy of the kind that makes life bearable. The idea that like you need a little bit of hypocrisy <laughs> to make life bearable, like you need fuzziness and sort of like a willingness to bend rules to some extent I haven't really thought through the answer to this but I'm wondering like what is the difference between the good hypocrisy that makes life bearable versus like (laughs) bad hypocrisy and like maybe it has to do with like how the types of exceptions that you're willing to make and like the direction that your compassion and empathy flows in and like what motivates your hypocrisy right like yeah if your hypocrisy is motivated by empathy and compassion and understanding that like everyone fails to live up to various rules and you're and you allow hypocrisy for like everybody equally then that's like one kind of thing versus like applying it very selectively and secretly to only like your immediate group yeah, I'm. You're kind of like blowing my mind a little bit. As I'm, <laughs> oh God, I'm like as, literally just making shit up right now. No, no, it's good though because I think that what you're saying is actually like what this book is about, right? He experiences that hypocrisy 
with his parents. Like I, like I said, his father beat his mother, but he was the leader of the spiritual community and also like genuinely believed the things that he was doing. Like he lived his faith in the kind of compassion that he showed for people. Mm -hmm. But at the same time was like very cruel to his family at, at various times and especially to his wife. And then when he gets into the evangelical movement in America, he is like a cynical hypocrite. Like he does not believe what those people believe at all, but he pretends like he does to like a get the political benefits of his personal agenda, you know, moving, Mm -hmm. but also to make money, to make a lot of money. Yeah. Um, And that cynical hypocrisy, like, really chews him up and destroys him. Uh, Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's, yeah, I think you're spot on there. And then at the end of the book, like you're saying, when he's meditating on the abortion issue and what it should be, he comes back to more of, like, where his father stood, that we, we all need to understand that we're imperfect and we need to be tolerant of a little bit of hypocrisy in our selves and in our enemies our you know political and and philosophical enemies because nobody's perfect and hypocrisy can just be a transition that a person is going through from one point of view to another to a new point of view right yeah yeah no that's that's a super key point too shit i'm gonna find this quote um so in the prologue yes it's a prologue sorry lonnie um oh (laughs) and the epilogue and the epilogue epilogue he he goes back to it yeah the only answer to who are you is when i love that yeah we're all on a journey of some kind and a little bit of hypocrisy is like a natural byproduct of just the fact that like we're all in flux evolving as Mm -hmm. people there's like this need for like certainty and for consistency. There's this idea of like, God is the same yesterday, today and forever. And that's how we need to be. Like if I said, I endorse this candidate of the Republican party. And then it comes out later that that person tricked me and was actually like a terrible person and embezzled money. It doesn't matter because my connection to God means that I need to be just as infallible and I need to stand by that person. Yeah. And the same thing with regards to like how various Christian communities are dealing with like LGBT rights, right? That like, yeah, I mean, it's pretty clear that the culture that wrote the Bible was probably like not that down with homosexual relations do we allow ourselves to change beyond that in the light of new information or do we just stick to our guns? <laughs> yeah. Double down, you know? It's yeah. Like, yikes. I, it's funny too. Cause so this book was written in 2000 or I, I guess I shouldn't say, I don't know where in, when the book was written. Um, the book was published in 2006. So probably written a little bit before that. And it refers quite a bit to like nine 11 and the Iraq war because um, the author's Mm -hmm. son became a Marine. The father and the son wrote a book together about that. That was actually on Oprah's book club. But yeah, it's (laughs) there's like clearly sections of the book that are basically written to call out George W. Bush. 
it's just like, oh, sweet summer child. Like, in the context of <laughs> Trump, like, you had no idea. <laughs> like, there's this one quote that I pulled out. He's talking on page 335. What sort of fools would our people elect as president or for Congress, given that they had so easily been duped by the flakes, madmen, and charlatans they were hailing and lavishly funding as their spiritual leaders? So that's sort of like, he's writing that from the perspective of himself in the 80s, calling forward to what he knows about Bush Jr. He talks so, so, um, you know... I don't know when this will be published, but today's August 26th. Yesterday, Senator John McCain died. Towards the end of the book, one of the things that Frank Schaefer was like clearly still very salty about in 2005 was how Bush Jr. sort of like torpedoed McCain's primary campaign in 1999 or 2000. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, he totally did. I remember that. I Uh. was like kind of paying attention to Paul I mean I guess I was in eighth grade like I don't really remember the primary I remember the 2000 election but I don't remember being that invested in the primary I was already in college at that time and paying attention especially to the Republican Party and McCain has always been or always was I guess now a person who was easily like put on the outs by more hardline conservatives because he would like not hate democrats basically (laughs) he was basically like a kind of fran schaefer kind of guy he was a moderate and um yeah and people hated him for it for sure it's compromise and people are like why would you compromise there the other side is evil i mean it's like oh my god yeah it's it's hard though because like i understand that like there are some things that i am like for sure not willing to compromise on, like, fucking bathroom bills for trans people. Mm -hmm. You know, like, like, really? You're gonna, like, basically make it so people, like, can't even go out in public because they don't have anywhere to pee? Or you're gonna, like, you know, force people who present as women to go in a fucking men's bathroom? Like, that's not good or safe for anyone. (laughs) He talks about this at the end of the book about like kind of single issue voting and how it warps the American system. Like it's not built for that, Mm -hmm. especially because our political system is not calibrated, you know, like the way that it was made originally to have political parties. Mm -hmm. And so it gets exploited a lot. So what you're talking about there. A Democratic candidate could go out and whip up people and be like, I am going to be the person who will keep trans people safe. And then the Republican candidate would also whip up single issue voters and be like, I'm the person who is going to stand up for traditional values and keep those trans people out of your bathrooms. Why is it... (laughs) Why is it this, why are you kind of like warping this issue into, it dehumanizes it on both sides, I think, is what I'm trying to say, you know, but I mean, that's the way that our system has evolved. I understand what you're trying to say, and I feel like 20 years ago, that made sense as like a framework to view politics through. 
but in a Trump world, like, I don't know how much it does. Like, how do you, how do you set up people who say, like, Mexicans are rapists, hardcore nationalists, and, like, anti-LGBT ideas, and people on the opposite side and say they're both equally dehumanizing. Like, I don't... Oh, no. Yeah, I I agree with what you're saying. I guess what I mean is that... Like, like I'm not saying that liberals are perfect and, like, either, like, strategically or morally. Like, I think one of the things that you and I have learned very recently is that people can hold a lot of the right positions and be super shitty people. <laughs> but... <laughs> And, like, make a lot of key hypocritical exceptions in ways that, like, do not make any sense at all and are not ethically defensible. Yeah. To keep themselves comfortable. To keep themselves comfortable. Yeah. I'm not calling for, like, a centrism or being like, we need to hear these Nazis out. Um, uh, Like, I'm not saying that. Yeah. but (laughs) I mean, I didn't necessarily think you were. I just wanted to make you say (laughs) that out loud. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I guess what I'm saying is, like, when you look back, I think he has a point that that was kind of the seeds and now we have reaped it. Like you said, like, oh, you sweet summer yeah, child. Yeah, yeah. Like, this is how we got here because by people pulling the lever of single issue voting, it com- it polarizes and polarizes until we're at this point now where like the really terrible people feel comfortable coming out and being like, well, I'm on your side. You know, like in like some dichotomies fall apart and some of them hold up or they like hold up on different levels. I thought it was really interesting the way that both like liberals embraced the term nasty woman and conservatives embraced the word deplorable mm. um, as like reclaiming like, hateful terms from the other side as, like, rhetoric of strength and defiance. Right. Trying to explain to myself how those two acts that, like, on the surface, superficial level are, like, so obviously equivalent and similar, but, like, what is the actual philosophical underpinning that, like, makes them different to me? (laughs) So nasty woman being reclaimed as a term by feminists is basically, like women have been specifically oppressed and silenced for centuries. It has a long history of, like, being used to silence women who are basically just, like, fighting for equal treatment. Whereas, Mm -hmm. like, (laughs) I don't think deplore, like, deplorable doesn't fit into any sort of, like, long rhetorical history unless you want to you know, I guess you could try and relate it back the way that, like, Nazi politics were sort of, like, insulted and considered evil and deplorable. I agree with you on the nasty woman part and that, like, should be reclaimed and be like, oh, you think you think I'm bad now? I'm just getting started. Um, and I really like that. I like that reclaiming of it. But the deplorable side, I feel like, and he talks about this um, in the book, it's, it's ridiculous um, in evangelical Christian culture that a big part of it is to feel like you are being persecuted um, and that you are being martyred. And that kind of proves that you are correct. You know, like the world says, uh, no evolution is a thing. 
And you need to admit that and say, well, well, that makes me a better Christian because you are saying that I am wrong and that God is wrong and the Bible is wrong. And that proves that I'm right. And deplorable is the same kind of thing. It's, it's, oh, you see these people, they just attack us. And that proves that we're the ones who are being oppressed. Us cis white men are the ones who are really being oppressed by this culture. If you total up all of the other religions in the world, it is not as many people as who identify as Christian. Like the idea, especially in America and Europe, that Christians are being oppressed by like a secular state or other religious cultures, you know, mixing in the same spaces as them is patently absurd. Like you cannot oppress Christians. You can't. <laughs> There's just more of them. Libby Ann on the Lovejoy feminism blog talks a lot about sort of the martyrdom complex um, and like the way that evangelicals view religious persecution. So I'll make sure that we put a link in the show notes and um, and I highly, highly recommend it to anyone who's interested in these issues. I just want to go back a little bit to the idea of like how the Schaefer brand of evangelicalism sort of contrasted with the other forms of evangelicalism. Mm -hmm. And that like one of the reasons why Libri was so successful was because it was really based in empathy. At one point, Frankie asks his dad, what do you tell people in your counseling sessions that is like so helpful for them? Like, what's your secret? How do you know how to help all these people? And his dad's answer was like, oh, I, it's not what I say. It's just that I listen to them. Right. And that's like, I feel like the opposite of sort of the modern evangelical perspective. And yeah, I guess like going back to the sort of hypocrisy theme, um, he says on like page 116, Dad spent the rest of his life trying to somehow reconcile the angry theology that typified movement fundamentalism with the Christian apologetic that was more attractive. Yeah, like, their perspective was just so singular, right? Because they were, like, they were kind of snobby about comparing themselves to other evangelicals. Like, they were nicer, they were more cultured, they, like, appreciated art and music and literature in a way that, like, all those pious Americans, um, you know, were, like, too simple and, like, couldn't understand. But they also, like, their livelihoods depended on basically, like, begging those pious Americans for money. It's, like, a little bit parallel to the sort of, like, the superiority of, like, knowing that you're saved... Versus also knowing that, like, the secular culture looks down on you. Right. Um, there's, like, there's all of these dualities in this book. And it's, like, it's interesting <laughs> trying to make sense of them. I can't remember it exactly, but he has this great thing about um, that they are outsiders from the culture. And that they want to convert the insiders of the culture. People like Bob Dylan and uh, Joan Baez and, and stuff like that. Yeah. So that they can be outsiders of the culture and they can help convert everybody else to be outsiders so that everybody can be an outsider so that now they're all insiders to yeah. the culture because they're the ones who did. And it's like this weird kind of like 
and, and the American Christian movement did this too, where like they became this imitation subculture where they like had Christian rock and Christian rap and Christian TV and Christian movies and Christian books, like anything that secular culture had Christianity had an alternative to it. Yeah. So that you could both be an insider and an outsider at the same time so that you could maintain that identity of being a part, but still have all of the benefits of whatever your wider culture was. Um, have you seen the movie Saved? I have seen that movie. It's a really good movie. Um, it's one of my favorite movies, and we'll probably watch it on the show at some point. But, like, when I read that section, it just made me think of Pastor Skip from yeah. that movie. Where it's, like, <laughs> they come into the school assembly, and it's, like, the rock music, and he's, like, doing backflips or whatever. And he's, like, who's down with the Lord? Right, exactly. <laughs> My man, Jesus! Yeah. Like, I... I remember listening, like, when I was a kid, I wasn't allowed to listen to, like, secular music or anything, but I definitely had um, cassette tapes of, like, DC Talk, which was, like, hip-hop for Christian kids. Oh. Yeah. Which, it was not... It was not It was good. not good hip-hop. No, no, it wasn't. Yeah, but, like, and that's, like, that's, like, the thing about the Pastor Skips, right, is that, like, on some level, it's so... It's like cringy just because it is it's like a pale imitation, right? When you're motivated yep. primarily by theology, it's going to be a bad imitation of the real thing. And he talks about it in his ministry in the book about how that was his worst work. The the books that he made while he was in the like James Dobson kind of club were bad books that were quickly written and poorly edited and the movies that he made and the documentaries were not good. Like mm-hmm. both on the production side and like the finished products were, you know, he's not proud of them compared to the novels that he made, which were like, he would do 20 drafts of, you know, yeah. and to get it right. Yeah. So a big part of this book is, um, you know, like his ego is on display for a lot of this book. And I think he's very honest about his shortcomings, um, but some things are invisible to him. And one of the things is that he credits himself and his father with aligning Christianity, evangelical Christianity with the Republican Party. And that's just not historically accurate. He does kind of talk a little bit about some of the radio ministries of like the twenties and thirties, but he doesn't give those the credit that they're due in my Mm. opinion. So you had after world war two, the big thing that happens is the rise of the USSR and communism. And basically like America becomes an anti-communist country. And one of the fundamental principles of communism is a state atheism. There can be no churches Mm -hmm. because, you know, church is the opiate of the masses. The USSR is atheist, which means that believing in uh, God and being Christian is like a super American thing to do. It is an Mm -hmm. anti-communist thing to be Christian. That, whoa, okay. I You're blowing my mind right now. I never really thought about it that way. 
And so what happens is the Republican Party aligns itself in especially the 40s and 50s with um, Christian, and this is kind of all Christian, basically just Christian belief. Just It doesn't matter if you're Catholic or Protestant. It, it didn't matter at that time because you had um, Catholic people on the radio who were against FDR and who were like, you know, this socialism, this is just communism light. It's coming down the barrel. You know, he, he's going to, we're going to flip to the USSR. They just want to deliver us to the commies, this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, that the Republican Party aligned itself with the church was kind of a power move to get votes, basically. it You know, a, a cynical move to say, like, the communists are atheists. We believe in God. Vote for us. And it forced a polarized response from the Democrats to be like, we are the party of enlightenment, of like education, of they became the party of technocrats, basically. Ah. And and what grew out of that culture is what he talks about early in the book. I don't think that he knows he doesn't understand the origins of this hardline fundamentalism that his father was a part of. Because his education is so poor, like he talks about in the book, he just like, yeah. That's another big theme on the Lovejoy feminism blog is like educational neglect and homeschooled fundamentalist kids. The liberal response to the Republican Party becoming the party of Jesus in that early '40s and '50s was, "We are the party of education." The reciprocal response becomes, "We are the party that doubles down." on the Bible is a history and science book. Ah. It like, it keeps flipping whatever the position, like it, it spins it faster and faster. It becomes more and more polarized. Your position has to become more and more hard line. But anyway, my point is the Republican party had already made those alliances to be anti-communist. When we get into the time that he's talking about in the late seventies and eighties, the abortion issue kind of gets them over the hump of the USSR collapsing. It keeps Christians in the pocket, you know, voter wise of the Republican party keeps them voting the way that they quote unquote should because the Republican party becomes the party of um, pro-life. And he was instrumental in that. I, I agree with him there, but he did not like, deliver Christianity to uh, the Republican Party kind of the way that he says he did. They were already, it was already set up for him. Interesting. The thing that I disagree with him on is he says at some point he that he thinks the Democrats could have easily become the pro-life party. Mm-hmm. And then like the Republicans would have become the pro-choice party. And I like, I don't think that was a possibility like i think abortion could have been less of a wedge issue or it could have been something that just like people on both parties disagreed on i think like feminism is to some extent like inherently left leaning a little bit i I don't think like pro-choice feminists would have ever surrendered (laughs) their place in the democratic party I don't think you could have had a complete swap of positions. You're probably right. Like by the time that that issue 
yeah becomes an issue i just agree with like i guess the principle behind what he's saying the best way to define what your political enemy position will be is for you to take a position yeah no i totally agree on that and i think he like absolutely shaped the way it's framed and like the way that it became like one of the top issues in both parties and like so completely polarized like i definitely yeah. agree with that but i like and he regrets it yeah oh absolutely yeah he thinks yeah. it's like the worst he thinks yeah. it's bad yeah, and I guess that's probably a good lead into our conversation about actual abortion that we've been promising since last episode <laughs> on Obvious Childs. Get to the abortion. Um, I have, like, three main reasons for why I personally support, like, a right to choose abortion. Although, like, I totally think that personal beliefs on like the morality of abortion can vary and I respect both positions on the morality of abortion. I am 100% think that it should be legal. And so like one of the reasons for that is that like as a scientist, like I absolutely do not think that personhood starts at the moment of fertilization or conception. I'm like 100% certain about that. And like the thing that I find really convincing is just the idea that like most identical twins form when the embryo splits around, like, the end of the first week. Oh, wow. Like, if you can get two people out of a single fertilized egg, then, like, that's definitely not where personhood starts. Um, and then, like, obviously, the viability limit with, like, 22, 23 weeks, like, if the fetus could be born and survive, then, like, that's a person. Mm-hmm. But I think sort of like where along that continuum is like an open question. And so because it's an open question where reasonable people should can disagree that it should be an open question where people can like make their own decisions. So I think there are so many agreed upon exceptions for when we think that a- abortion should be legal, when like most reasonable people agree that abortion should be legal. So things like rape, incest, if the fetus is non-viable, if there's like a serious medical risk, there's like so many different types of exceptions. The specifics of those are like so varied. It's just like way too fucking complicated to try and legislate, right? Like, again, shouldn't we just leave that up to individual people to make a judgment call? Like, it's really complicated. A friend of mine from grad school recently had a a very wanted pregnancy where about six to eight weeks in, um, the fetus stopped growing. Mm. Your, Your options are basically wait for a natural miscarriage or have it taken care of. You can, like, schedule an extraction. You know, she's, like, teaching classes full of hundreds of undergrads and like working on her research and like trying to make decisions about like what kind of experiments she can and can't do based on like risk and exposure to a fetus and like you know like do you want to be going through your whole life teaching classes full of hundreds of undergrads not knowing if you're going to start like violently hemorrhaging blood (laughs) and like need to be rushed to the hospital like it basically not 
allowing women to have this medical tool, that is a very real obstacle towards equality in the workplace. Maybe people aren't aware of this, but there's like a lot of reckoning going on in academia right now for like, what's with the leaky pipeline? Like, why are so many women going through grad school and then dropping out before they get tenure track jobs? And like, dealing with all of the medical shit around like reproduction as a woman is one reason. And then the final group of arguments is basically that like, there's no way to make abortion illegal that does not infringe upon the liberty of women and the ability to exist as a free and fertile person. That basically, when you make abortion illegal, you automatically make having a uterus and having sex illegal. Because every miscarriage becomes a potential crime and subject of investigation. Mm. And so, I mean, like, we see this in so many countries where abortion is illegal. Like, women are in prison for potentially the act of just having a miscarriage. And so, like, it criminalizes having a female body, literally having a female body and being sexually active in a way that I'm just, like, super not comfortable with and is super misogynistic. Yeah, I sympathize a lot with the the pro-life position, you know, wanting to protect innocent lives. But I think there's, like, no reasonable way to actually make that a law and an enforceable law. On some level, it's, like, really hard to take the pro-life movement at its word when, at the same time that they're also trying to make abortion illegal, they're also trying to, like, make birth control harder to access and get rid of sex education and, like, restrict funding for prenatal programs and postnatal programs. You know, like, if you're really motivated by protecting lives then, like, you need to care for women and children before and after the baby's born, and you need to do whatever you can to reduce unwanted pregnancies. Because it's, like, it's so hard to make the argument that it's actually about saving lives and abortion and not about just controlling women's sexuality. I agree with everything that you're saying. Um, We're both pro-choice. I think that if we were a democracy... And like everybody voted on things instead of having like representatives who vote on stuff for us. Mm-hmm. I would I think that on this particular issue that like it should be like a law that men get like a half a vote or maybe one quarter of a vote <laughs> or something. So I don't think that like what I think is very important on this issue, like in terms of like <laughs> that's one of the things that was frustrating to me in the book. He's very honest about like his his zeal around abortion being extremely emotionally driven but yeah for me like it never seems to occur to him like it's not your business <laughs> like yeah like, you don't you don't have the equipment like what yeah. are you worried about this for um and it just comes from i think a baked in mindset of it's my job to protect women even if it means i have to protect them from themselves yeah and that sort of like goes in With, I think, a conversation we were having earlier off mic about, like, as much as I appreciate his perspective and his narrative and his writing style, um, and and on some level, I think he's, like, way more self-aware than, like, 
a lot of people, probably most people. Yeah. Um, he's still like stuck in a very patriarchal perspective. And the moments in which that like becomes very concrete and like jumps off the page are very shocking. Yeah. Especially yeah. It like, is like a tone shift. Yeah. Towards the end, there's like at one point where he just sort of like casually mentions whores. Um, yeah, to to give that context, like what he says, he he uses it as a metaphoric and he talks about like I was making this movie so that later I could make a good movie. Like I was just doing what was enough to to find integrity later and it's like I guess it's a simile, it's not a metaphor. Oh, yeah. He says it's like going to a whorehouse to find a wife and you're like whoa wait a wait a minute yeah because you know whores aren't people you know the way that you would you wouldn't want to marry that thing you know yeah and also just like reducing women to basically like their body as a metaphor for another object like fuck that (laughs) um yeah yeah and like I definitely appreciated his sort of, like, frank and unashamed way that he talks about his sexuality and sort of, like, how it evolved as he was growing up. But also, like, the way that he talks about women's bodies is kind of gross. Yeah. But his, like, very acute self-awareness with regard to, like, so many other topics in the book, I think, is, like, really missing in terms of, like, the way that he treats women and women's bodies. Which is super a problem because of the subject of the book being about abortion and, like, what he thinks about it. Yeah. And again, it's, like, not your business. Like... (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like, I understand that, like, everybody can have an opinion about it and he comes at it from more of the moral stance. And at the end of the book, like, the things that he says are more moderate... Uh, I don't know. Like, I I agree with the general idea of what he says at the end, that there should be actual legislation around the issue of abortion. I mean, there is no law. It's um, And this is another big problem in American politics that of, you know, quote unquote, legislating from the bench. What that really is, is like a failure to legislate issues that people care about, like there's yeah. there's no reason why Congress and the Senate can't make a law that says abortion is legal. Like they could do that is their job. But since Roe v. Wade, they're like, oh, it's taken care of. And it's like it's not taken care of. All it takes is another court to say, nope, we were wrong. And then it's it's all flipped again. I feel like the courts in many ways are like a much coarser tool than legislation. And not reliable. Roe versus Wade was decided on the right to privacy, which isn't even about abortion. So, like, when the justices were deciding the case, like, they have limited logical and rhetorical tools at their disposal. You can't, like, craft the bounds of rights as carefully through the courts as you can through legislation, if that makes sense. It totally makes sense. That's the whole point of legislation, right? Like, right, yeah. I mean, like, look at the tax law. It says, like, everybody shall pay tax. Every business shall pay tax. And then it says, except 8,000 pages. Yeah. You know, like, like that's, that's how law works. And so you would say, like, you know, women have the right to an abortion at, 
all times and in all terms, except blah, 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 blah. But no one will propose that because of how deeply polarized this issue is. Because if you are like the senator or congressman who goes to the floor and says, okay, I have you know, the bill for the legalization of abortion and this is what the parameters will be, then everybody is going to, like, the next time you have an election, the Republican running against you is going to be like, I'm going to, I'm the person who's going to stop. You know what I mean? Like this yeah. baby killer from, you don't want to be that guy to, or that woman, whoever, to, to be the one to propose the legislation because you're putting a target on your back. You know, even if you were to to have some sort of abortion legislation that had, like, an exception, I feel like, I don't know, just, like, based on how the pro-life and pro-choice movement is set up right now, like, it would devolve into, like, litigation over individual cases. Although I guess, like, hopefully with HIPAA, like, the pro-life groups wouldn't even find out about all, I don't know. It's just... It's tough. Well, I mean, that's part of the messiness of legislation. But like, if things were legislated, then I feel like you could clear up certain issues like I would want there if so I would want women to have safe access uh, to abortion. And then I would also want there to be a caveat in there that like, this procedure will not be used for like eugenics purposes. I see. Yeah, there should be like some kind of counseling or we should have like ethical boards or like, Doctors should be held to some standard like we sh- there should be a conversation, but there's like no the only conversation is I'm standing up for traditional values and and we're going to make 13 hoops for a woman to jump through to to, you know, take care of a problem that she's having. My whole thing about the eugenics argument, like I totally agree that like it's a little bit scary of like designer babies or just like aborting babies willy-nilly because you, like, want one with this trait or that trait. Like, at the end of the day, (laughs) incubating a living thing inside of your body is so terrifying and so personal and carries so much medical risk. Any pregnancy in any woman, regardless of her physical condition... And, like, the scenarios, like, it's a big medical risk. And especially in the United States where our maternal mortality rate is so much higher than any other developed country. Like, Isn't Serena, that crazy? Serena fucking Williams almost died. And she's, like, a mega gazillionaire, mm-hmm. you know. And if, like, I mean, and obviously, like, race factors into that as well. And, like, people not believing black women about their own medical issues. But, like... Because pregnancy is inherently dangerous, you should be able to to decide no up to a certain point without having a panel of men telling you that reason's not good enough. I don't think I like the guy. Like after reading, I've read the book a couple of times. I didn't like him the first time and I like, I, I still don't like him very much. He's very honest. I respect him. Yeah. Yeah, like, I don't know if I would want to be his friend, but I, like, I find his story fascinating and, like, yeah. really informative in a lot of ways. <clears throat> the book's really well written, too. Like, if people want to check it out, I would, I think it's pretty good. The audiobook is funny because at various points in the book, he sounds bored. 
by what he's reading. <laughs> and it's like, you wrote this book. Also, Why it's you your own poor? life. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that wraps us up for this episode. Come join us next month for an episode on Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, a movie picked by Alan to make up for the fact that I did two episodes in a row because I (laughs) thought they were thematically related and I'm in charge, so I can do that. Um, That's right. uh, Alan does the editing. I make the schedule. Um, (laughs) So yeah, uh, I don't know, Alan, do you want to... Talk about why you picked the movie a little bit. Oh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon is like probably like the best kung fu movie for people who don't watch kung fu movies. Like it's the most watchable Um, just like on many levels, I think. Uh, But also Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, when I watched it for the first time, was the story that where I understood story structure for the first time. Like in a, in a deep way, because it takes all the rules of what a Kung Fu movie should do and inverts them. And I noticed that, which forced me to notice the structure of Kung Fu movies. And then in turn forced me to notice the structure of all stories. Interesting. It was like a light bulb. I was like, oh, I get it now. Like, and that was, I want to say like my sophomore year of uh, college while I was an English major. So, yeah, I'm talking about that. And also, like, there, it's a fantastic movie, you know, in terms of we've been talking about feminism for two episodes now. And this story is about women, uh, really. Like, the male characters are all incidental to the plot and are generally just love interests for the women who are in charge of everything that's going on in terms of the plot mechanics and... Um, and all of that it's it's about a young woman and her coming of age and um the decisions that she's going to make around should she be married should she have a career should she be free should she be an aristocrat like it's a very complex emotionally complicated movie that has like incredible action fights and um and completely innovates the kung fu movie genre it's fantastic I love that movie. That's so interesting. I definitely watched the movie when it came out because, you know, it was like Uh such a huge phenomenon that year. Yeah. Um, But I was in high school and I have not rewatched it since then. And I was definitely not into story at all to the extent that I am now. So I'm really looking forward to the chance to to rewatch it. And actually, I feel like I kind of I want you to come up with like your top 10 kung fu movie list. Oh, man. (laughs) Um, And I'd be interested, like, there are a couple other kung fu movies in the past that I've really enjoyed, like uh, Shaolin Soccer. I love that movie. I feel like we should maybe, I mean, like, the main part of the episode can be Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, but we can, like, have, like, some side convos on, like, other awesome kung fu movies. I'm Anya, and you can follow me on Twitter at Strangely Literal. That's Strangely, then L-I-T-E-R-L. You can follow the show on Twitter at HGStoryCast, and visit our website at HGStoryCast.com. And if you'd like to leave us feedback, you can visit HGStoryCast.com contact, or send an email to contact at hallowedgroundmedia.com. We'd love to hear from you. 
maybe a memoir about the role that religion played in your life while you were growing up. Don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts if you're interested in helping us get new viewers. Listeners. (laughs) Listeners. Hallowed Ground Storycast is a Hallowed Ground media production and is produced under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, share-alike license.